we've also had 100% current graduation rate right now coming out the gates. And it's all because we focus in on trauma, restorative practices, humane-oriented teaching, humane-oriented leadership, and it's yielded us those type of results. And that's the impact that's had on our com community and our young people. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher in the Los Angeles area. This is year 17 in the classroom for me, and this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to the world of education. Shout out to all of you who are watching on YouTube. We just recently crossed 600 subscribers, which, you know, for, for us, that's a, that's a big deal. It's only, it's only a two-person operation, and we are full-time educators, so shout out to y'all for supporting us on YouTube. And of course, if you're listening on the go. Shout out to you too. Thank you so much for tuning in and please consider rating us and reviewing us if you enjoy what you hear. Jeff, man, it's Valentine's Day weekend, man. You excited? Oh, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've you know, I've never really been into the whole Valentine's thing. I think it's, I, you know, I don't mean to be a downer, but I think wow, it's kind of just like, you know, it's like just a commercial made up reason. You go to restaurants and it's like 75 bucks for a hamburger and a, you know, and a drink. But the hamburger is like, full it, of love, Jeff. It's <laughs> it's a love burger, yes. Love burger uh, indeed. No, I'm, I'm being a bit of a uh, Scrooge right now, I know. But uh, Valentine's Day is fine. I just, I don't buy into the hype of it, I don't think. I got you, I got you. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of curious, you know, since... Most schools are distance learning, at least most schools in California are distance learning, and, and those that aren't might be doing a hybrid situation. So I kind of wonder what happened to the uh, Valentine's Day card industry this year. You know what I'm saying? Remember those little cheap cards that you get for your oh, classmates yeah, and, and all that? Yeah. They, they must have taken a big hit this year. Yeah. So if you're Valentine. if you're not a fan of corporate uh, Valentine's, Jeff, then perhaps this is this is your year because I'm sure they I'm sure they took a bit of a hit. So I'm sure they did, and I'm sure I will be buying a card and some flowers and some you know I'll I'll be doing my part. You know I'm not a deadbeat Valentine, but um, you know it's it feels a little bit forced, right? It's a little bit forced. A little bit, a little bit. You are correct. Yeah. You are correct. Um, what's not forced is the uh, really dope humanizing conversations we have on this show as we explore different headlines <laughs> in education. Yes. I, I know you like that transition. I know you like that. That was, that smooth, was dope. Very smooth. Um, so, yeah. Jeff, man, tell us what's on the agenda for this episode. Well, Manuel, as usual, we got a good one for everybody. Um, today, we have... A, uh, just a wonderful guest, compelling, powerful personality uh, and figure in the field of education. He's been on our show before. We had him on uh, about two years ago, back when he was in his first year um, as a principal of a new uh, and exciting new high school in Los Angeles, um, serving the, the South LA and Watts communities. Um, he is none other than Eamon Ra. Uh, a lot of people know him online as Principal Ra, or perhaps as the revolutionary educator. He is making all kinds of power moves right now, has a new book out 
um, by the same title, uh, Re Revolutionary Educator, um, and has a conference, national conference coming up um, in early March, March 6th and 7th, um, the Revolutionary Educator Conference. So we're going to talk uh, about the exciting work he's doing, a lot of the groundbreaking, uh, powerful work, particularly through the lens of creating school cultures that cultivate and sustain and nurture um, our young people in ways that the traditional school system has has not always done well. So we got Eamon coming back. It's going to be a great conversation. You definitely don't want to miss it. Dope. Looking forward to that. Always nice to have returning guests. This, of course, is episode yeah. 65. So those of you who've recently, recently encountered our show, we have 65 full episodes worth of news, headlines, and, and dope guests from all around. And, and if I do recall correctly, Principal Raw was one of our first guests to really drive the YouTube numbers because that, that sit down that you had with him, Jeff, where you um, asked him about his school in Watts, that still gets like plenty and plenty of views on our YouTube channel. So yeah, it's great to have him back. He was a first year principal back then. Now he's he's a big time vet, especially in this pandemic. I feel like we've all become like weathered veterans in education through the last <laughs> yeah. just year. It's been wild. So looking forward to that conversation for sure. But up first, of course, we have our Do Now where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Jeff, how are we gonna do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, today we got a report card. We're gonna, um, you know, dole out some grades, let uh, kids and their parents cower in fear as the mail comes, or I guess today as the email comes, or as the login to your school's LMS <laughs> awaits. As the notification comes. <laughs> At the five week mark, uh, we're we giving out some grades today. All right, just insist on giving grades in the midst of a pandemic. All That's right. right. That's right. All right. So let's do it, Jeff. The first grade we have for today is um, actually it's just blank. It's just incomplete. Just really don't know what to gra what grade to give this, Jeff. Yeah, it's a, it's it's just a mm, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's just a, I don't know, you know. And I yeah. feel like a lot of teachers can relate because like there are certain students who we've barely seen log in to distance learning. You know, there's there's you know one or two per class that maybe just familiar names, but you haven't seen them. And it's like, well, I don't want to give them an F, but they're not really here. And what can I do? And in this case, this story pertains to students who simply aren't there at the kindergarten level. Jeff, at the kindergarten level. So let's get into it. Now, we uh, came by this story thanks to some good reporting from Karen D'Souza for EdSource. And she reported that during this pandemic, data is showing that enrollment is down significantly across California and across the rest of the country in kindergarten. The state's largest school district, Los Angeles Unified, had about 6,000 fewer kindergartners show up this fall compared to last year. Superintendent Austin Butner noted that the biggest drops in kindergarten enrollment are generally in neighborhoods with the lowest household incomes. Early childhood advocates say kindergarten is a pivotal period that sets the stage for the rest of the elementary school years. While many students have likely suffered so-called learning loss during COVID, it, it just might have a far greater impact on incoming first graders simply because of where they are in their development. Missing early milestones in reading and math skills may set students up to fail as the workload increases in the upper grades and experts really fear that unless this this 
Learning loss, I just hate using that phrase, but you know, unless this learning loss is addressed, some children may struggle to keep up with their peers, which will widen the already troubling achievement gap between those who have money and those who are cash strapped. Jeannie Gorbach, president of the California Kindergarten Association says, quote, next year's new students will need time to learn how to do in-person school. Teachers will have to explicitly teach how to behave in a structured learning environment. Next year will require teachers to do a lot of assessment and differentiation. Jeff, man, it's a lot of kindergartners missing, a lot of little ones. Where are the kids, Jeff? What's going on? What are we gonna do? Well, you know, I don't know where the kids are. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are, there are some theories. Um, I, you know, I think what's really powerful about what was, uh, you know, some of the issues that were raised there that actually pushes us a little bit, because um, I know you and I have lots of feelings about the, the term learning loss and the kind of weaponization of learning loss. Um, and I appreciate that what this article is, is pushing us to think about here, which is, at the youngest grades, right, where there is a profound difference developmentally between where you are at the age of five and where you are at the age of six, that is not, you know, nearly as pronounced when you're 16 and you become 17, right? Um, you know, you, you might grow from 16 to 17 physically, but, you know, but in terms of your, you know, ability to use words, let's say, right, or your ability to write versus not being able to write, right? Um, the developmental leaps that happen in a year's time at the, at the younger ages, socially, academically, intellectually, emotionally, are huge. And so there are very real implications and likely somewhat negative implications of, of kindergartners not, you know, kindergarten age students not experiencing kindergarten at that time. Um, so I do think it's something we need to think about. I do think it's right for school systems and for educators to be doing some planning ahead to say, hey, you know, if we have a much larger number of kids who are going to enter into first grade, let's say, in the fall, because in most systems around the country, what determines what grades you're, you're, you matriculate into isn't whether you did kindergarten um, or not, it's how old you are, and if you're, if you're at the threshold, you go into first grade, right? So we may be looking at a future where we have a bunch of first graders who haven't had kindergarten and way more than, than is normally the case. Um, so, you know, first of all, hopefully all of these folks who have sat out of kindergarten or opted out of their local public schools kindergarten come back to the public school system, one. And two, when they do, I hope we can just take what I think is, you know, is just the, the sort of normal, thoughtful approach we have, which is where's a kid at when they come and what are we going to do to support them on their way? And which is not labeling them deficient you know, identifying all of the ways in which they, they didn't learn everything they were supposed to learn during the ridiculous, horribly led pandemic, right? Like there's a part of me that just doesn't care about, about learning loss at all from the standpoint of like, I don't think it changes our work with kids and families when they show up to us, let's say in the fall, right? So, um, this is, I appreciate what this article is raising. I do think we need to think differently about the very youngest students because of the developmental implications of not having any school and then showing up in first grade. 
But um, at the same time, I hope we can keep front and center that we are not and need not be in the business of finding new ways to label our students deficient and talk about how our unjust system has, you know, um, resulted in an even more unjust new status quo and then blame it on the kids and families and educators in the communities that are already most hurt by this unjust system. So that's that's my thinking, Manuel. What what comes to mind for you as someone who teaches, you know, people who are kindergartners uh, a decade or more or more ago? Uh, what what say you? Yeah. So I I get it. I really, really feel for parents out there who have kindergarten age uh, kids because it's like, I mean, the Zoom thing, the the online school thing simply is not going to do it. It's just not going to do it. So for for parents who had the, I guess, the the opportunity or the privilege to to opt out of a year and, and um, you know, want to re-enroll their kids next year, I get it. I understand. It, it makes sense to me. What I think we really need to do just as a system is along the lines of what you were saying, use some real common sense approaches in terms of placement of students. We need to have a lot more flexibility. And the folks um, who are quoted in this article spoke to this, this flexibility of placement. So not just automatically assigning a kid based on their calendar birth date, but trying to assign them more um, based on their developmental level. And there's some legislation in, in the works in California, at least, that would give students, give students, give parents the opportunity to um, hold their kids back a year if they didn't have kindergarten last year. So I think that's a great approach. I think a lot of flexibility is needed. In the first place, even before the pandemic, students are experiencing kindergarten in a variety of different ways. So let's not just pretend that like, ordinarily every student is at the same level and it's like a lockstep on through the K-12 pipeline, K-16 pipeline. It's not like that. Students experience it differently, partially because of inequities in the system, partially because of just differences in their development. This mentality that we have that it's a lockstep year by year um, growth for students, it's, it's you know, really outdated and it's time to, to rethink that. But I would really love to see a lot of support for those early childhood educators. I'm talking uh, pre-K, TK, kindergarten, even first grade uh, educators. I really want a lot of support for them because I think they are gonna have to differentiate in ways that perhaps they have never had to before. And it would be great to see an infusion of resources and support at those grade levels to help uh, students at their various uh, developmental stages to be given the resource and the support that they need. And I don't wanna see like one teacher in a room full of 30 kindergartners trying to figure out all the little differences that they have, cause that's just not a, a winning formula for sure. So, and I also wanna push back a little, get, a little bit against all those who say like, this is like perhaps a wasted year for those kindergartners who weren't yeah. in kindergarten because I mean, I have high school students and for a lot of them, when they unmute themselves in class, like I hear the children in the background, I hear all kinds of stuff like these, uh, the article quoted somebody is saying like at that age, their brains are on fire and I could hear it in the background. Like the, there's a lot of kids who are in um, really warm, supportive, loving households who are learning a lot. Maybe it's not the, you know, the technical curriculum that they would normally learn in kindergarten, but it's not like it's a, a complete year lost. There's still a lot of growth, a lot, still a lot of development happening. I really just want to see some support for those early childhood educators and for families to make the decision on, on what grades to place their students in next year, next fall. And yeah. of course, all this just highlights the need to really be planning for next fall. Like, what are we really going to do? Because there's so many different areas that need to be addressed. And if we don't seriously plan that, 
it's going to be a whole bunch of like just outdated approaches and kids will just be placed into whatever grade their you know their calendar birth date says they're supposed to be in and it's just going to exacerbate all the all the inequities of course that we know um were present before the pandemic yeah i'm i'm so glad you you said that manuel and it's the it's the like essentializing of whiteness at the center of this conversation about learning loss that is also just driving me freaking nuts, man. Mm -hmm. Like the the idea, just like you said, right? That like kids staying home with their parents for a year and albeit parents are, you know, obviously experiencing a whole lot of stress and, you know, compromised by the pandemic conditions in lots of ways themselves, right? So that is real. But also staying home in a house where, frankly, and let's let's own up to some stuff here, Manuel, our school system does a worse job of caring for certain sets of kids than their home context does, right? And it's not just a couple of kids on the margins, right? So like, I do not like this sort of deficit framing of poor black and brown folks and their home life that is coming out of this whole conversation about learning loss and it's being sort of sanitized with the with the term learning loss, but it's, it is institutionalizing a whole new type of deficit mindset about kids, families, and communities, right? On the other side of the learning loss coin is, maybe kids are gonna come to school next year with like way more sense of self-esteem and support and emotional stability because they're actually getting more hugs, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're getting you know more time with, one-on-one with an adult who cares about them most right and so yeah you know it is it just it frustrates me that we're framing this issue this way that we're totally ignoring everything that they have been learning um, and framing it as a deficit mindset and we're only doing this about poor black and brown folks we're not talking about you know um rich white kids in suburbs whose schools are in distance learning we're just assuming that they have, you know, great, wonderful, beautiful things happening, and uh, you know, and that's gonna, of course, contribute to the to the wonderful norm against which we should all compare ourselves. And you know, maybe what we need to be doing is saying, "Huh, white people have some very deep, huge, embedded problems across." all of white America in this country, and what are they doing with their children to make sure that we don't get any more, um, you know, QAnon shaman guys running up into the Capitol with Confederate flags, right? Have they been working on that during distance learning? I'm not so sure. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm ranting here, man, but it, this this whole framing of this conversation pisses me off because it is it is just, it is pathologizing yep. our communities and our youth in a way that is not correct and also just deeply problematic from a professional standpoint in education. Yeah, yeah, facts, facts. We love facts here on All of the Above. And uh, Jeff, I remember there was some episode, I don't know, seasons ago, where one of the stories was about just how many preschoolers and kindergartners get suspended and how disproportionately those are black kids specifically getting suspended. So it's like, well, no suspensions during this distance. Well, actually there have been a few, I don't even want to get into that, but fewer suspensions during this distance learning time. So let's not just assume that like they'd be better off at school because some of these students will be facing very negative, negative experiences in, in, in the schoolroom. So yeah, man. All right. Schoolroom. Is that a word? Schoolroom? I don't think so. Classroom, schoolhouse, uh, <laughs> whatever. Zoom, Put zoom rectangle. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, in any case, Jeff, we have other grades to get to. So what's, yes. what's the next grade on the report card? All right, man. Well, next up on our report card is, um, you know, uh, 
This is a good grade. Uh, well, it is a negative 155,000. What? Yeah. You, not only did you get an F, you got an F plus, plus, plus. Man, well, well a negative F. <laughs> well, it has been almost almost a year. We're approaching the, the year, one year anniversary of, of the give them all A's era. Mm. And, you know, this is most certainly, I don't know what the hell the negative 155,000 is, but it's most certainly not an A. So yeah. this does not sound good, Jeff. What's going on? <laughs> it is definitely not good. Okay. So uh, this grade comes to us from a story um, out of Cal Matters by Ricardo Cano. And uh, here's what's going on, man. California's K-12 public school system enrollment has precipitously declined during the pandemic, dropping by a record 155,000 students, according to new state projections. That drop-off is about five times greater than California's annual rate of enrollment decline in recent years, and the state has predicted a similar rate of decline to continue. Education advocates say the enrollment drop is likely due to various factors, such as families withholding enrolling their children in kindergarten, as we were just talking about, um, to also a higher than usual rate of student dropouts. Los Angeles Unified, the state's largest school district, has seen an enrollment drop of about 6,000 kindergarten students, which is a 14% decline over the previous year. Advocates worry that the decline in enrollment, along with the declines in students who identify additional dollars through California's Local Control Funding Formula, or LCFF, could result in significant destabilization in school and district funding. Now, Governor Gavin Newsom's most recent budget included some financial protections for schools that would last through the end of this academic year, though some advocates have called on the state legislature to extend those protections to the additional pots of funding dependent on districts' count of low-income students, English learners, and foster youth. Manuel, the kids uh, are disappearing. Now, there are still roughly 6 million students in California's public schools, so they're not all gone, um, but they're disappearing at perhaps an alarming rate from our public schools. Um, lots of factors at play during this crazy time of pandemic. Um, but I'm curious to get your thoughts, man. Like, what does this mean for our schools? Is this a blip on the radar that we're going to just bounce back and recover from? Or is this, you know, more of a lasting trend you think we need to worry about? Yeah, well, I will say, first of all, don't tell don't tell the folks on the right. Don't tell the far right uh, YouTubers and podcasters because this will feed into the narrative that California is, a, California is a disaster. Everybody's leaving California. The taxes, the liberal policy, the liberal failures. And, and I get so many folks linking articles to me about people fleeing California, mm. which just isn't <laughs> the case. But anyways, um, so yeah, these numbers are troubling. Uh, 155,000 fewer students enrolled in, in California public schools. That's 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 a giant number, but it's important to highlight that we don't really have a whole lot of data just on you know the different reasons why. So some of it, of course, is the kindergarten uh, situation, which we just talked about in our, our previous story. Some of it might be perhaps some students, you know, enrolling or some families opting for homeschooling in, in private schooling. Although, you know, some private schools have seen drops in their enrollment and others have seen gains. So, you know, we don't really know how those numbers are going to fall out when this is all said and done. And some of it is the dropouts. Uh, somebody in the article uh, was speaking about working with incarcerated youth and working with foster youth. And they said, you know, they have a lot of students who 
have dropped out because they just simply could not deal with distance learning. And I'm thinking about a few students that we have at my school site that we've done home visits, we've done all that we can. And, and a few of these kids have been like, just, I just can't do it. Like I just can't do school through a computer. I, I just can't. So I think the the dropout numbers are, are worrisome to me. And I think that also helps explain some of this decline. And then of course you have just, you know, variety of other possibilities that we don't know too much about because we're still in the midst of the pandemic. I think this highlights the need to really, really hit a home run in the fall. In the fall, we're going to be dealing with students who've experienced real loss. I saw a, a number yesterday that said something about one in 1000 Californians have died due to COVID. We're going to be encountering students who perhaps took a year off, perhaps just simply did not like log into any of their classes. We're gonna be dealing with students whose parents like opted out of school for the year, you know, in the kindergarten situation. We're gonna be dealing with a lot and it's incredibly important to hit a home run in the fall and really, really welcome students back to a positive experience, a humanizing experience and not just act like we didn't just go through a, a terrible pandemic. I think this is, I wouldn't call this a blip, but I would, I would, be shocked if these numbers like sustain through like next year and beyond as schools return to normal. I think the pandemic has everything to do with this number being so big and we have to bring these students back next year in a way that engages them and meets them where they're at without having them feel bad about what they might've missed or how far behind they're gonna be and all that negative stuff that, uh, all that deficit thinking that, that uh, was just discussed in our previous story. It is troubling, it is troubling for sure, it is. But we have 6 million students right now who need our help and need our support. And in the fall, hopefully we'll have more than just those 6 million as we get some of these other students back. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. No, I, I you know, I, what you said really resonates with me around the importance of hitting a home run in the fall, right? Um, I, I think my, albeit unscientific, assessment of what's happening is not that there is a permanent mass exodus, at least yet. Um, from from our schools. I think there's probably bits and pieces of different things happening, right? Younger students, opt, uh, parents opting to just keep them home rather than have to struggle with, you know, chaperoning your five-year-old on distance learning all day, right? Right. Um, or opting to still keep your kid in childcare, which in many cases was still open during the pandemic when, you right. know, when schools were not, if you had to work, right? So I think there's a slice of it that's that. The boost in dropouts uh, for older students right now is definitely disturbing, um, but also hopefully uh, some of that may have been driven by, this sounds bad to say hopefully, but where I'm going with that is I know for some teenagers, the economic pressure to be a provider for the family yes. has gone up as parents have lost jobs. And if we could experience either a better social safety net and or uh, you know, an improving economy where adults can get their jobs back, that may actually free up some of those young people to return to school, right? So maybe not all of those dropouts were what we might traditionally think of as dropouts, which is like, you know, kids who are like, I'm done with school, it, you know, maybe more kids who are like, I have to work, right? Um, so, you know, hopefully there'll be some, you know, potential gains there. 
um, there had been a lot of speculation about like our kids, you know, leaving the public system to go to private schools because in many parts of the state, private schools are, are open. And I think, um, you know, it looks like although the declines in enrollment in private schools are maybe a bit smaller than they are in public schools, um, overall, the private school system is not seeing, gain, you know, gains in enrollment. So um, it, that doesn't seem to be it either. And, you know, the reality is also California has declining birth rates, right? Um, some of that driven by just the, you know, the high cost of living here. And so people are, who are here have fewer kids. So I think there's a, there's a lot of factors, probably many more than we just stated as well. But my sense is we haven't lost everyone, right? Um, and I agree, we need to really get it right when we bring people back, especially any of our young people where there's, you know, where, where we're sort of talking about the margins of the system anyways, right? And like kids and families who may be ready to just be like, well, if you can't serve me well, like I'm out of here, you know, I'll yeah. try the charter school or I'll try whatever, you know? Um, so I think, I think we have an opportunity to really bring folks back. We're going to have to do some things differently and we definitely aren't going to be able to start with like, let's diagnose how deficient you and your kid and your family has been for the last year during this, you know, super stressful pandemic. So, um, we have an opportunity. I hope we, <laughs> I hope we seize it so as to not have this be like just a permanent and super destabilizing effect on, on schools. Yeah, man. I hope we seize it. Yeah. I'm not hopeful that we will, but I hope we do. And there's a difference there. And, yeah. um, and it is important to point out, like, California's cost of living is insane. Like, it's, it's crazy. So there are a lot of families who have moved out of California because, like, you just – it's very difficult for just the average family to buy a home or to ever aspire to buy a home at this point. So you know there is some you know of that for sure. What's I so mean, funny about that, Manuel? What's that? Uh, this morning, I was uh, – occasionally I just poke around on, on Zillow. Um, no, no endorsement, uh, but you know, just like to try to get a sense of, am I getting any closer to being able to afford a home in the part of Los Angeles where I live? And the answer is most decidedly not even close. Uh, yeah. and, and I saw something today that was just purely bananas. Now I hadn't put any filters into the Zillow machine. Uh -huh. if, if for anybody who, who has used it in the past, just, you know, looking around to see in this area what's available. And I, I kid you not, Manuel, there was a, a house. I mean, we're going to loosely call this a house that looks like a royal palace. 16 bedrooms, 19 bathrooms, $38 million, okay? Damn. Now, I don't know if for a 16-bedroom house that's expensive or not. <laughs> I've never been in the market for a 16-bedroom house. Right. Uh, I don't even, I didn't even realize such a thing existed uh, here, you know, outside of like it, royalty in England or whatever, right? right. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you got 38 million bucks, there's a nice house for you here, Man. Uh, apparently. Yeah. And that, I mean, obviously that house is like, you know, there are giant mansions across California, like <laughs> a lot of states. And you know, that's, yes, but if you're just a regular yes. family, you just want a regular two or three bedroom, single family home, just the, the, the old school California type home. I mean, it's, it's crazy. A home sold up the street from where I live, that's just a regular ass house, just very regular. Like when I say regular, you know, three bedrooms, garage, two bath, like the average, you know, California single family home. And it sold for eight hundred something thousand. So it's like, yeah, who could afford what? Like what? What regular like yeah. working person 
can afford that for just a really basic house. Like yeah. so so yeah, there are people who have opted to move away, especially as jobs have gone remote and online. So like if you don't have to be next to your workplace anymore, then why not move to Arizona or somewhere where you could get something for a lot cheaper? So there is some of that. I don't know. There's so much going into these numbers um, that I think we just have to wait, have to wait and see how it plays out and make sure that we hit a home run in the fall for the students who are present, no matter who they are, but especially those who might not have had much uh, formal schooling experience this year. So, yeah. Yeah, indeed. All right. That about does it for today's Do Now, folks. Up next, we have a very, very dope seminar uh, with Principal Raw, and we're going to get into we're going to get into a, a lot of dope discussions about his work as a principal and his uh, work in transforming school culture. All right, so you don't want to miss that. Stay tuned. What up, AOTA family? Now, we really appreciate your support. Some of you have reached out uh, letting us know that you would love to leave a five-star review and do a little write-up, but you can't seem to find it on Apple Podcasts because it's kind of buried there. So just so you know, if you are using Apple Podcasts, if you go to your library, which has all the shows that you follow, if you click on our show and then scroll, you got to scroll all the way down to the bottom, at least on my phone, on my version, that's that's how you do it. Scroll all the way down to the bottom, then you'll see the reviews there and uh, you could leave us that five stars. And if you have a moment to write a little a little write-up that would be great these sorts of things help us show up in more educator searches when folks are out there trying to find podcasts to listen to about education and your support goes a long way thank you so much now back to the show All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you here with us today because we have an incredible guest who is back here with us for his second time on All the Above. We have the uh, the powerful, the compelling Principal Eamon Ra, also known as Principal Ra, for those of you who uh, follow him online. Welcome back, Eamon Ra, to All the Above. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate you for having me. Yeah. So let's run down uh, Principal Ra's bio here and tell you a little bit more about him. Uh, Eamon Ra is the proud founding principal of the University Pathways Public Service Academy, also known as the U, which is a public high school located in the Watts community of Los Angeles. Eamon has spent his 15 years working in education, serving in the schools of Watts and South Los Angeles. He began his career as a special education teaching assistant and has served in many roles, including teacher, dean, and restorative justice coordinator on his way to becoming a principal. Most recently, he has published a book or will be publishing a book. It'll be out real soon, folks, um, <laughs> called Revolutionary School Culture, Six Principles Unlocking Your School's Hidden Treasure, and is hosting the upcoming Revolutionary Educator Conference, which is taking place on March 6th and 7th. He is born and raised in Compton and comes from a family of educators. And Eamon is a proud graduate of Cal State University at Dominguez Hills. Eamon Ra, so glad to have you with us. And I'm gonna kick yeah. it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, so thank you so much for being on the show again. It's been about two years and when you were on our show Previously, you we were like in the actual studio, in the physical studio, and a lot has changed since then. You were a first year principal back then, and your school has grown a lot since then. The 
world has changed. Obviously, the pandemic has pushed everyone towards distance or hybrid learning, and, and so much has gone on. So I guess we want to start by just asking, um, how have you, like as a as a school leader and and your school more in general, how have y'all adapted to these changes? Like, what's how have y'all grown and, and approached all that's happened since your last time on the show? Yeah, you know, I think it's important for where we are at. We had like we we have a firm rooted belief in the village, right? And as a first year principal, we we were already doing a lot of technology, building a, a community with technology and social media and virtual learning type of thing. So when the pandemic happened, we were able to pivot a little bit easier than maybe other schools because our students are, are were already connecting with us through social media platforms. They were already using, you know, social media and virtual uh responses, calling responses type of activities that we kind of created. So it made it a little bit uh, easier for us to make the transition. Like uh, we always say that the, the, the best cure for any disease is prevention. So I like to believe that as a first year, second year school, not knowing that we knew the pandemic was going to happen, but we had preventative measures that that helped us with the transition from another school that possibly never used social media, never had like uh, these type of uh, mechanisms in place to connect, to engage, right? To, to really be intentional about engagement. So it made our transition easier. So as of right now, we, we, we have really great engagement. We just did our uh, virtual pep rally using StreamYard and YouTube where we had students connecting with and we had guest speakers popping in. We had pre-recorded hype rally videos where we're just trying to innovate and trying to be, um, something that students can engage with and connect with and still have some form of love for learning, which is, which for the most part has been great. And also inspire our educators to be, to be innovative. So they can also have that, that why, because many educators right now has been struggling with, with their why right now. It's been hard on them. So we, we wanted to make sure that we had a place in a village that could support educating and raising our young people. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, to that um, to that kind of larger issue of like how you innovate around creating and sustaining a powerful, compelling school culture in the midst of a you know a global pandemic when you can't be next to um, all of the young people, uh, you have an offering to the world coming out here uh, in the form of a new book um, entitled Revolutionary School Culture, The Six Principles of Unlocking Your School's Hidden Treasure. Um, oh, there it is. Okay. Um, now, first of all, I just have to say congratulations um, on publishing. That would be an accomplishment under any circumstances. But to do so as a principal, a sitting principal, uh, I don't know where you find the time, man. So yeah. <laughs> con <Yeah>. congrats. Uh, <laughs> congrats on that. Um, I'm wondering if you can just kind of, um, you know, give us some insight into, you know, you've you've kind of carved out the, the niche for yourself as the, you know, the revolutionary educator and, um, you know, have a lot of, I think, experience and wisdom around creating uh, powerful school cultures and revolutionizing school culture. What does that mean to you? What, is, what does that look like for folks who are, are hungry to, to try to do something similar? Absolutely. Uh, man, listen, the time has been crazy. My wife, you know, late nights, weekends, summers has been dedicated to this. I actually started writing a book um, right when I became principal, so about four years ago, uh, uh, and just took experience from my experience as a restorative justice coordinator, where I was supporting and helping principals at one point 
help revolutionize and implement restorative justice practices, right? Um, because I feel that this equity work and this relationship work is the key to unlocking hidden treasures, but not just with young people, but with communities, with educators uh, across the nation. So uh, the key to this is our line six principles is really having a, a dream and a vision and setting the stage for that. Like for example, at our school, uh, we our mission is for 100% of our students to achieve self-actualization, right? That means that we have to be rooted in the, hum the, the humanistic approach to learning. And we describe it as we have a humane oriented leader, right? A humane oriented leadership. And then we have humane oriented teaching. Um, and these principles align to that, which helps unlock each student's individual treasure, uh, which help them actualize where if now we get these group of young people to self-actualize, we want them to then hopefully get to community actualization. So this framework is really diving into how to build an aspirational environment for young people, not just uh, in, in person, but also virtually. Uh, how to build a, 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 com a true community school. There's been a lot of rhetoric around, hey, we need community schools, but what does that look like? You know, and how does that feel? And we, we really are big on authenticity and we're really big on uh, uh, collective work and responsibility where everyone does a little where no one person has to do a lot. So all these approaches helps us revolutionize education. And just to describe the differences, the evolutionary process in education is naturally going to happen. It's, it's, that's gradual, right? It takes time for that evolution to happen. And I think that's been the framework for education for so long. But in society, revolutionary things happen with technology, with vehicles, with industries all the time. And it makes an immediate impact on society. And this whole term of being a revolutionary educator and revolutionizing education is the same, take that same construct of identifying problems and create a solution that makes an immediate impact that can change the trajectory of that evolutionary process, right? And it doesn't mean that you're just going neglectful trying to speed up the process because evolution is gonna happen. But it's the, it's the framework of like, can we turn something around overnight? Absolutely. Does that mean the whole ship is gonna turn around overnight? Absolutely not, right? So I, that's the whole point of this revolutionary education, the revolutionary book, the revolutionary conference is how can we make an immediate impact, immediate positive impact on young people, our communities, and in the classroom, and in schools and in districts while understanding the reality that exists? Right, um, and that we're opposed. So uh, that that's it in a nutshell. Dope, dope. And for folks listening or watching, I just want to say we'll we'll link episodes beneath this one, um, previous episode with uh, Principal Ra and his one on one, where he goes into more uh, detail about like the the roots of his school and, and more about um, the U and what makes it so special. But you know, as far as, as far as this book goes, I'm I'm waiting on my copy, waiting on my signed copy. But I have heard that in there you go into what. Maslow's before blooms actually looks like and what it actually means. And first of all, shout out to the the Blackfoot Nation, who of course were the the foundation of Maslow's hierarchy. He studied them when developing this hierarchy. We want to know from you, like, what does that mean in practice, and and why is that important for revolutionizing a school culture? And and it goes back to really what I said too is prevention is the best cure to any disease, right? Um, so that means if you're if you're somebody who's trying to get healthy, you want to prevent yourself from actually getting the disease by eating well and doing those different things. So we understood when we were developing the work is trauma exists. 
There's a barrier with relationships. There's a barrier with cultural relevance. There's a barrier, like Marcus Garvey say, a student that doesn't know their history is like a tree without roots. There's no way that it can grow. So if we know those things and we understand that, then we go into a framework of URR. URR is you must understand, you must recognize, and then you must respond. So when we're talking about Maslow's and self-actualization, we must, have, and we're all familiar with it, you'll get a PD on Maslow, all those great things, you understand it. But then most people don't get to the second R or the first R, which is recognize. And recognize is diving into possible solutions, right? Coming up with possible solutions. And then you get to the third or the, the, the last part, which is the second R is actually respond. And that's testing it out to see if it works. And then once you nail it, you scale it. So for us, I wanted to make sure that we had a family atmosphere at, at, at our school and not a team atmosphere. So instead of calling our assemblies, assemblies, we call them family. So every Monday morning, we developed something called family where the whole school come together and it's about breaking bread. It's about building relational trust. It's about student to student relationships. It's about inspiration. It's about activation, bringing in guest speakers and it's called family. And the language for our young people is, hey, we, oh, we, Monday, it's time for family. They start saying that to each other. It's time for family. The second thing that we did was we changed the name from our advisory. Many schools have advisory or homerooms and we called it kinship. Right. And kinship made it seem like, hey, no, we're building on this family. So our teachers say, hey, I have kinship. Students say, I have kinship. This is what is kinship? This is a relational trust that we have. And we start to do restorative practices, community building circles, uh, presentations of learning so they can work on self-efficacy, emotional regulation, how to deal with anxiety, finding themselves and purpose and meaning to life for them. Right. That's kinship. Then after that, we came up with a third thing. We developed what's called a house system. And a house system is similar to Harry Potter. We tried to create a fraternity and a sorority feeling on our campus. And we developed four houses, the house of motivation, the house of friendship, the house of advocacy, and the house of courage. These houses helped build those, those, those values that we wanted. And now it's like a, a constructive competition, we like to say. But these are items and which were possible solutions that we implemented. And we nailed it. We, we, we absolutely nailed it because it's, it's gotten us results to have one of the best uh, tier one engagement uh, data, which is attendance. Uh, we, we have contributed to over a 96% attendance rate. Um, we've also had 100% current graduation rate right now uh, coming out the gates. And it's all because we focus in on trauma, restorative practices, humane-oriented teaching, humane-oriented leadership, and is yielded us those type of results, and that's the impact that's had on our com community and our young people. Yeah. I mean, those are some, uh, some powerful data points there, and, um, you know, doing that in any context, I think, would be, uh, you know, would be noteworthy. Doing that in the context of the community that you serve, which you know I think is is pretty undeniable as one of the most and longest underserved communities um, in the city of Los Angeles, in like every possible imaginable way, um, is is important. You know, not just as a as an example of what can be done, but also um, you know as a real service to to the community. So um, definitely want to want to congratulate you on that. Um, 
something that I, I noticed um, mentioned in your, you know, revolutionary school culture thinking is this concept of redefining the role of, of teacher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we exist in a system, uh, in education that is, is a massive bureaucracy, right? There are, there are rules on top of rules on top of rules. And many of those, you know, exist for, for good reasons, right? Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, they can often be very confining, right? And so in, in a context where there, there's, there can seem at least like so many barriers to doing things differently, I'm wondering if you can give us some insight into like, wh- how do you conceive of refining uh, or redefining this, you know, this sort of role of teacher? And, um, you know, what, what does that mean to folks who are like, I'd love to redefine, you know, uh, what it means, but like I got 75, you know, different uh, compliance um, measures that make me stay within this box. Yeah, I think it's important to bring the reality to the forefront. The reality is, we are more than educators, unfortunately, right? We we are the the def- definition of that teacher, where it's just like, hey, I could just come in, teach math, teach the teach the standards, and go home. No, no, like many educators across the nation, if you didn't feel it before during the pandemic, you realize that you are doing social work, you're doing quasi parenting, you're the critical friend, you're the 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 passion worker, you're and also teaching, right, and also leading and also doing so much more and you're more than an educator and should be highlighted. And redefining that is being able to understand the reality that exists, that hyper accountability exists in the bureaucracy of education, right? The word accountability has been used so much that we need more accountability, we need more accountability, we need more accountability. And then it's created this hyper accountability on many of our schools, especially schools that are quote unquote, high title one in an urban communities that's culturally diverse is hyper accountability that then connects to hyper standardization and not just with tests, but just with a standard on what things should look like, right? What things should feel like and what things should be like, which has created a box that suppresses, suppresses culture. It suppresses cultural relevant pedagogy. It suppresses all the equity work because you're so focused on the hyper accountability it's like that. It's like that framework. I'm so focused on getting the great lesson plan that I forget to have a great lesson. Right. And I think it's important for us to redefine and measure what matters. Right. Like in 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 open up innovation, open up the opportunity for creativity, open up the opportunity to to redefine what success looks like. And I'll give you an example. Uh, let me explain. So during this time, we we have been struggling, our schools across the nation have been struggling with engagement. And there's been students that, especially at the high school level, there are students that are working, doing many different things. How, we can be so creative with how we engage with taking that experience, work-based learning experience, and bringing how science relate to the workforce, how math relate to the workforce, how using that experience to learn from, right? Using that experience to gain value from. And I think we, I think, but the hyper accountability suppresses that. You can't even think about how we can use that and leverage that because we're so focused in the traditional norm of hyper accountability and hyper standardization. So this redefinition is is understanding that that exists, the hyper accountability, hyper standards, and unlocking the the hidden treasure, which I highlight 
of redefining what you as an educator, your role as an educator, and your mission as an educator. So you can start thinking about education in a different forefront. Schooling is different than education. That's dope. And I think this is this is a time where a lot of educators out there are reflecting on their purpose and reflecting on their why and and really coming to terms with, you know, what they aspire to be versus what ended up happening when they entered the system and, and this hyper accountability that you mentioned. So, so yeah, I'm sure that that's going to resonate. I'm sure that resonates with a lot of our viewers and a lot of our listeners for sure. Now you have a, a conference coming up, uh, revolutionaryeducator.com for folks who who want to learn more and um, consider attending? And how about you give us the the big picture about that? What's um, what's going to go on at this conference? Why why should folks attend? What are they going to yeah. learn? And and how will they be impacted? No, oh, thank you. Uh, the Revolutionary Educator Conference is going to be amazing, but because it's taking all the things that I've said, but you're getting immediate impact that you could take in the classroom. So we have curated some of the most revolutionary educators across the nation from K through 12, not even K through 12, from K to higher ed. That's why it's a two day conference uh, from the whole extension, because I think there's been a disconnect also with what needs to be also revolutionized in community colleges and in universities to make sure and ensure that this pipeline of power that we're trying to create for young people in our communities exists and it doesn't it doesn't stop once they leave high school right so this this conference is to get you practical strategies for if you're a kindergarten teacher that you can make an impact if you're a principal you're going to be able to make an impact if you're a district leader you're going to learn from that if you're a, a professor we got we got two professors that's going to be talking about their work and how this connects to revolutionizing even in higher ed. And this whole, this whole conference is activating liberation pedagogy, right? And it's, and it's a place for collective healing, like bringing classrooms together, not dividing them, bringing districts together, not dividing them and bringing communities and classrooms and all those things together, not dividing them through activating liberation pedagogy, which is internalizing and activating. So we're super excited about it. Um, and we got, we're bringing culture into it. We got performances. It's 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 going to be an experience like no other, um, and we're super excited about it. Yeah, um, Amen. Final question for you uh, in our time together today. Um, you know, I have the privilege of working with um, a, a broad diversity of school leaders across not only Los Angeles but across the country, and you know, something I have. Um, something I've seen uh, as kind of a theme to the last year, this sort of COVID uh, year of schooling, is that the, the stress, the, the challenge of this time on school leaders, on principals and assistant principals, I think has kind of gone under the radar, right? Mm -hmm. Because everyone is now like cast into the classroom uh, via Zoom with their teachers and really starting to recognize like, man, teachers have a tough job right now, which is, of course, they do. Yep. Um, but, you know, the the stress and the pressure on principals during this time, you know, is maybe less visible. And something I, you know, I appreciate about you is your, you know, your sense of kind of optimism and, and um, you know, seizing the possible, um, mm -hmm. even in the face of challenge. I'm wondering if you have any words you might want to share with other school leaders out there who are exhausted, you know, feeling the, the brunt of all the uncertainty, trying to take care of their teachers, but then sort of like 
well, who's taking care of me, <laughs> right? Um, I wonder if you have any words you might want to share to other school leaders out there who are, you know, just trying to make it through this this difficult yeah. time in our profession. You know, it's it's been rough for, I think, everyone in education, right, during this time. Because that the vicarious trauma that exists amongst us as educators is real. As principals, as school leaders, we take in it from the families and parents. We take it in from students. We take it in from teachers. We take it in from our own personal. And, and a lot of us are the problem solvers. And we take it and we take it in and we become stressed and we become we have those vicarious experiences. And I would say, you know, this redefining of educators also redefining your role as a leader, right? And understanding that uh, in this in this time, less is more in a sense of making something that's complex and being able to simplify it will help bring clarity and help bring resolve to you as an educator. What you're doing right now is great and it's more than enough. Take time. And you know, I wanna say this about self-care too. Uh, Self-care isn't a destination, it's an ongoing process, right? Um, it isn't just like, oh, I'm going to self-care on a vacation. Self-care manifests in everyday life practical things that we do. If it's waking up and, and taking time to have your, your daily coffee, or if it's waking up to say, you know what, I'm gonna go on that daily run, or if it's at night, I'm gonna do my reading. It's being consistent in what you feel and what you are interconnected with, right? Or what you're connected with. And I would say for that educator, for that leader, Take time to audit yourself off of what is your self-care practices. So you can also message that to your teachers. So, so their teachers can also message that to the students. And now you see that we've created a village around how we're going to navigate through this pandemic. So with those practices, uh, you know, that will change your community, that will change your school and ultimately change the world. And audit yourself if you are, if you are you know, conditioned to the hyper accountability and the hyper standardization, um, that, 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 the symptoms of that is hyper exhaustion, <laughs> right? You, you become exhausted because you're, you're fighting against an existing reality that um, is devastating and has wiped out the best of us. So take time for yourself for sure. Yeah. Well, um, Eamon Ra, Principal Ra, thank you so much uh, for those words and for sharing your thoughts with us today. Uh, congratulations again on the uh, upcoming release of your new book um, and your upcoming conference, Revolutionary Educator Conference, March 6th and 7th. We'll uh, have the link um, below here for folks to check out more about that. And just want to appreciate you for joining us today and for giving up some of your time to be here with us on All the Above. Hey, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate your platform. Appreciate all the work you're doing, making an impact in education. You guys are you guys are rock stars. All right. Uh, thanks again. And folks, that's it for today's seminar. Next up is our class dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we we have reached that point in the episode where we like to give shout outs to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. And this is the segment we call Class Dismissed. So, Jeff, before we get up out of here, who are we shouting out? Well, Manuel, that's an excellent question. And the, uh, 
The honest answer is I'm not exactly sure, but it is <laughs> it is somebody or somebodies within the um, the now Betsy DeVos free U.S. Department of Education who are taking on the work of dismantling some of the more criminal and uh, absolutely <laughs> horrible and unethical practices and systems that were put into place under her four-year reign of terror um, at the U.S. Department of Education. And um, this is a uh, just a, a recent story here in uh, January of 2021, um, the, the same week of the inauguration, um, the U.S. Department of Ed um, has put forth a proposal to, um, to essentially ban uh, one of the more notorious accreditation agencies uh, that had issued accreditation for fraudulent for-profit colleges. So folks out there might remember that we have done some, uh, some discussion in the past of Reagan National University. This, for all intents and purposes, seems like a university that didn't really exist um, based out of South Dakota that like had an address which was like an empty storefront, right? With no, no chairs and stuff. Um, uh, but this accreditation agency, uh, which is called the Accrediting Council for Independent Colleges and Schools, um, was the accrediting agency for Reagan National University, was the accrediting agency for Corinthian Colleges also, um, you know, brought up on <laughs> on charges for defrauding students, right? Um, so uh, this agency, um, in a report released uh, in late January from the Education Department, um, has been recommended for termination of its recognition as an accreditor by the U.S. Department of Ed. So um, hopefully, Manuel, what this means is that, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, folks out there, working adults, you know, young people who are like trying to get a leg up in our economy, trying to make it, um, will not continue to be defrauded by colleges that are given accreditation when they uh, are, you know, criminal enterprises, right? Um, so, you know, this is, this is a shout out. We got to figure out who wrote that memo, perhaps, but whoever it is, props to you. This is an important first step in undoing some of those just crazy things that were happening under Betsy DeVos's tenure and uh, hopefully makes the, the sea of colleges that people are choosing from less shark infested, if you will. That's, that's a beautiful way to put it. That's a really nice way to put it. And if, I, if memory serves me correctly, I think the Obama administration had initially gotten rid of this accrediting agency's power and then the Trump administration in their effort to retrofit the swamp um, brought it back. So it's good to see that it is, it's, it's gone again. And I like yeah. that retrofit the swamp, man. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what it was. That's, I thought they were going to drain it though, man. Well, it was, it was going to drain, but now no, you say they just retrofit. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, so, uh, so that there could be more muck and more yeah, exactly. craziness in there. So, yes. so yeah, so that, that's, that's promising. I'll, I'll take that in this, in this, era of a lot of not so great stories out there, not so great and uplifting stories out there about the world of education. It's it's nice to see that there is work being done um, to uh, try to rectify some of the, the trash of the previous administration. So, so that's great. All right, folks, thank you so much for joining us this episode. We really love and appreciate y'all. We hope you enjoyed what you heard or what you watched. Do consider giving us that, that thumbs up or that five-star review. It goes a long way. All right, folks, we'll catch you next time.